Today is May 26, 2013. This is Amy Degley interviewing Ellen Wessel for the RRCA Women Pioneers of Running Oral History Project. Ellen is best known for co-founding Moving Comfort, the first line of women's running clothes. Hello, Ellen. Hello, Amy. <laughs> so you were the first one to decide that you wanted to make women's clothing. So you had to have started running before that idea even popped into your head. So tell me about how you got started running in the first place. Well, it was 1974. It was, um, I think I actually started thinking about it in July of 1974 when I got the my second cold in about three months. I went to the doctors, and instead of telling me to stop smoking, because I was very much a smoker, he just recommended cutting back for a few days until my cold went away. And I walked out of his office and just said to myself, this is, I'm an idiot. And um, I determined I was going to stop smoking, which would be the second time I had stopped smoking earlier, but gained a lot of weight, decided I'd rather die thin and young than be fat. So anyway, I decided to quit smoking, and I called up my older brother, who was had been running for quite a number of years, and told him, declared to him that I was going to uh, meet him at the meet him at his little track. Um, and then it was August. It was August of 1974 that I met him at the local Y, which then was about three or four blocks, I think, from the White House in Washington, D.C., and the track itself was a 22-lap-to-the-mile track suspended above a basketball court in a very rickety old YMCA building that has now been replaced by a very state-of-the-art fitness center, although this is the 70s, so it's probably been replaced again. Um, but anyway, so I started running indoors, and because of the uh, tininess of the track, I would run with a clicker, the kind that people use to count um, crowds, just to keep track of how far I was going. And um, they had a challenge going on of a 100-mile challenge, which was running 100 miles in, I think, 10 weeks or something. So that was my first incentive to um, to be consistent and to um, run a little bit more and more frequently. And the... uh, the injuries that I, the injuries that I got early on were basically very sore ankles because the banking on the track was so steep in order to be this little tiny circle above a basketball court um, that I just had to work through very um, very stressed out torqued ankles um, but at that point, I was just running indoors and um, there was another woman running the same time and she asked she invited me to run outside which to me was a really big deal to actually go and run out on the streets this is downtown washington and in 1974 you really didn't see women running you really didn't see anybody for the most part um not on a regular basis running outside so it felt very daring um so anyway i'll high speed forward by um, 1976, I was running probably 70 miles a week by 1976 in marathon training because um, my my commitment to myself to become an athlete and no longer a smoker was I, I embraced very vigorously and um, then became an obsessed runner. And um, of course, doing that kind of high mileage 
And it was interesting because, you know, I then fell into that subculture of the running community, which was the D.C. Roadrunners Club, um, which was, of course, part of the Roadrunners Club of America, and Jeff Darman and Phil Stewart. Those were all, you know, my neighbors and friends, and one of them became my husband. Um, But uh, so I was really, that's the world I became immersed in. And so running these high miles, too, because it was, of course, a weekly 20-miler meant that, um, you know, you'd, you'd experience a lot of, um, of very intimate things about your clothing. And, uh, you know, you'd be chafing, I mean, chafing between your legs. Because in order to get a, a man short or a unisex short, which is really just a man short, um, to fit, you'd have to get a little bit bigger so that you'd have the waist that worked. I guess it would be a little bit smaller so the waist would work. But then, you know, women are, women from waist to crotch are shaped more like a square. And men are shaped more like a rectangle. Well, the result is that I would either get chafing between my legs or too tight a waistband or it was uncomfortable. It's not like this was a uh, crisis of proportions that had to do with, you know, poverty in the world or anything. But personally speaking, all that mileage we were doing, I would have liked something a little more comfortable. So the woman that I was training with at the time and ultimately became my business partner for all of about six months. Um, she and I came up with this idea of making custom clothing for the women in our running club. Um, we'd started an all-women's running club. There were about a dozen of us. Henley Gabo, who was Henley Routon back then, um, she and her husband had been instrumental in bringing together local women who were racing into what became known as the Washington Run Hers Unlimited. And um, so that, you know, so kind of then we were part of another novelty, which is an all-women's running club. And it was that club that my friend Valerie and I and I decided we would make in custom clothing for. So that was the beginning of Moving Comfort. Um, so that's bringing you to 1977. <laughs> and... Uh, a couple questions about about that time period. You said in 1974, it felt um, different running outside. You know, there weren't many people running and not very many women running outside. Did you feel like you needed to hide your running when you were out there, or did you just feel self-conscious? Um, what do you remember about first running outside? I just remember feeling self-conscious because people would turn around and look at you. And then, of course, I was young, so you also got cat calls and um, the kind of uh, expression from construction workers and, you know, people walking along the street. So it was, it was, um, it was distracting and it was uh, sort of hard to just get into your own reverie um, when you were attracting attention for doing something pretty novel again at the time. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't trying to hide it. It was just being sort of self-conscious, so I don't remember when I ran by myself alone for the first time, but I wasn't running alone by myself then. <laughs> and then when you were with the D.C. Run Club with, you know, Phil Stewart and Jeff Darman and, and some of the other guys, did the men accept you as training partners? Did you did you train with the men at all when you were in the running club? Well, they were very, very supportive, and um, they were much faster, <laughs> so... Um, I, I know Phil and I dated for quite a while, and um, she was very helpful to me in coaching me, but we didn't run together because there was a t- 
total mismatch in our pace. So okay. it was, you know, sort of like meet, meet you after you have each gone on your own. But I definitely found it being very supportive in the Roadrunners Club of America, of course, one of the things that made it meaningful was that it also was, was sort of fighting for women to get equal distances and um, and co-ed running was sort of part of the the way of being for the Roadrunners Club. So that was an actually, it was a very positive um, experience. Okay. And do you remember the first road race that you ran in? You know, I, I remember my friend Valerie Nye being the one who um, encouraged me to go, and it was definitely a local D.C. Roadrunners Club. I don't remember exactly what it was or where it was, um, but it would have been, you know, it would have been with that organization being the sponsor of it. And I don't remember even if it cost any money. <laughs> I know that the, uh, the Boston Marathon at the time was only about $2, so it probably... Yeah, I, I don't even remember. I don't even, what does it cost now? Oh, gosh, probably 100 plus. You're kidding. Well, oh. okay. Yeah. And do you remember, <laughs> so you started racing and... When did you decide to do your first marathon then? Well, this would have been this, this also would have been inspired by Valerie and I think it was the first marathon I ran was um the Marine Corps marathon. And the track then, I mean, I think we went we went down the Mount Vernon trail a lot of it. So, it wasn't the new course that it is or new. It, it changed, I guess in the late 70s or early 80s. But, yeah, it was the D.C. Roadrunners. I mean, it was the marathon, the Marine Corps marathon, and it was awful. I was so afraid of having to go to the bathroom that I didn't drink anything for several days. So the um, the, the not expected but what was certainly explainable afterwards was I was I got dehydrated and got searing headache and backache um, and there was and so of course I was very tempted to just stop I didn't but um, one of the things that that got me inspired to keep going was I forget what his last name was but he didn't have feet he had he ran basically in like these cups on his feet wow Peter something or other I bet Jeff or Phil would remember that man's name but um he so humiliated, not humiliated me, but I figured, God, my problems are nothing. So I did finish, and I can remember it was, it was a, I mean, I was wiped, completely wiped out, thinking I'd never do this again, and of course I did very quickly thereafter. I think the Maryland Marathon was my next one. Um, and I, yeah, so I don't, you know, I, I ended up running in very kind of weird places. There was a Columbia Marathon, um, ran down there. There was one North Carolina, Bethel. It was in Bethel, North Carolina or something. Um, there were some marathons where there were no crowds. I mean, you, you could run, you could be going for miles before you'd see anybody. And that was a little bleak, but um, I steadily got better at it. And, um, you know, it was it was a way of life. And there were not that many women running these races at the time. 
Oh no, there weren't because I I ranked pretty high up <laughs> without breaking three hours. So um, yeah, I the first time I ran Boston, I w- I finished 29th, and the second time I ran Boston, I finished 31st. And my time the first time was like 3:13, and the second time was 3:05. So I was getting faster. But I was, you know, obviously losing losing um, position because more and more women were um, coming into it. And I hit my, I hit my, I hit my, um, I think the apex of my ability at a little over three hours with that Boston Marathon. And I just could not combine speed and endurance without getting stress fractures. Mm. So that ended up sort of being my limitation along with talent but I just didn't um, I didn't have the anatomy or the muscle structure to um, be able to break three hours which was a disappointment but I found that the faster you ran the better the marathon felt so oh god and like people who are running them the way they are now it just I don't get it but it's uh Quite a phenomenon. And so you've been running about 70 miles a week, and you're starting the marathon. And, of course, when you're running, especially with other women, you come up with lots of ideas. And as one woman said in an interview, you know, if you have any secrets, don't run with someone else more than two miles because you will tell them everything. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sure that you and Valerie had talked about a lot of things. Did the idea of making the running clothes come up? Did it start during a run? Did you guys talk about it while you were running and come up yes. with that? Yeah, most of it came up that way, as did the name. Um, okay. No, running is a great place for creative thinking because you you, know, you ultimately get into a reverie where ideas are no longer being um, vetoed by your brain. They all just float in and out, and it's, it's fantastic. That's, that is something I miss about not running anymore. Definitely. And I know I, I'd already interviewed Henry, and she talked about how, um, you know, I think the meetings were in her house for a while for some of the runners, and yep. she talked about, you know, people getting together and, and helping to sew some of the, the clothing that you guys had started making. Um, so tell me about how Moving Comfort all began, and it's, it's a fantastic story with people pitching in and, and you trying to get into the, the apparel world. Well, we um, were making the clothing we were making in Val Nye's apartment, and we were getting fabric and cutting the fabric up, into, and we would create these little kits that we would then ferry around. We advertised for home sewers in the Washington, D.C. area. And so, again, we had nothing to compare this with, so we didn't know what we were doing was really baby stuff. But we would make these kits up, and then I would be in my little VW, and I would ferry the the sewing kits around to these four different women who lived, it seemed like, the farthest points from each other and still be on the Beltway in Washington, D.C., and um, drop them off and then come back a week later and pick them up. And that was, um, that was our form of uh, manufacture for the first five, six months. And... Um, one woman was a black woman in the southwest part of Washington, and I can just remember how she would just 
she'd have to kind of almost shield her eyes when she saw Tommy trying them on because they're so short. It just seemed so <laughs> immodest for us to be running in clothing like that on the street. So, um, but she was she was a doll. But uh, she tried, especially after Valerie dropped out of the business, she tried to be so helpful to me. But I didn't know how to sew, and she wasn't a runner, so it was it was sort of like we spoke completely different languages, um, which is where my meeting Elizabeth Gokey pretty much changed everything and um, allowed the business to go forward because if it had just been me alone, it wouldn't have happened. I don't know if Henley told you about when Valerie decided to drop out and I just had this 24-hour breakdown um, where I just figured, there's no way I can keep this going. And Henley was instrumental in, um, in giving me the confidence to just keep moving forward. Um, and then it was um, it was actually one of Phil Stewart's best friends, Bruce Robinson, um, who had a store called Racket and Jog. And so it was through Phil that um, Bruce ended up becoming our first customer. And um, it was also because of Phil that the, even the idea of starting our own business became seemed um, reasonable because he and Ed Ayers had started running Times. So, um, you know, that, so we were, here we were, we were part of this running community with these little entrepreneurial businesses popping up all around, um, products for runners, a retailer, a magazine, clothing. So it was, um, it was really almost, almost a commune. <laughs> the East Coast definitely was I guess the innovator in a lot of things, the East Coast, you know, you guys had a lot of the first races, the first women in a lot of things. You guys had more indoor races, obviously, for the weather. But the East Coast really had this amazing community of runners, and everybody seemed to intertwine and help each other, uh, you know, kind of get running off the ground and get things related to running off the ground. Traveling circus. <laughs> Traveling circus, I like that. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I like that. Well, I think, you know, Phil Stewart, Jeff Darman, they were, they were real. They worked very hard on, on the, on the um, organizational side of running. And, and then from there, I've, I've read some articles that you had trouble breaking into the industry because people, I guess, laughed at you for a while because you wanted, you know, to order certain fabrics and you weren't ordering probably quite as much as people wanted. And so it was hard for you to get kind of into the business and get the fabrics you needed and, and I guess even get the infrastructure to make the clothing that you wanted. And I think, oh my, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, we had so many humiliating experiences, you know, whether it was financing from banks or being able to have the, um, the garment industry be willing to sell to us. Um, because, again, it was a new industry, too. So the fact that we were young women, um, at that point, Elizabeth was 23, I was 26. Of course, you had no credit history, and you're, you're young people doing a crazy thing of making women's running clothing. So, you know, between the category, um, the nature of us being young people as well as being women, um, yeah, getting any kind of... Um, 
being taken seriously was not easy. It helped a little bit that my stepfather was in the garment business, and he was able to get us some contacts within the uh, manufacturing, not the manufacturing side, but the textile side. So, you know, you would just kind of take advantage of somebody knowing somebody and at least somebody listening to you or at least letting opening the door and letting you come into their their office. Um, so, and then as you would get one person selling to you, the next person would be willing to sell to you. And so it was very incremental, um, but it really is true that, you know, you just had people sort of taking a taking a chance and not getting burned, and then you just kind of build up a reputation for at least, if not being um, smart and savvy, at least for being reliable and responsible. And, uh, you know, that's kind of, and, you know, that served us really well because, you know, 25 years later when credit was tight and um, you were needing to get more credit lines to be able to grow the business, um, I understood later on that we were described as a character loan by a banker where it wasn't so much that you had these great, this great collateral collateral to offer, but that you had the, the character that you weren't going to um, um, walk away from a debt. So, um, you know, that's that's where I think business people just need to be very careful about making sure they're very consistent and very responsible. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> oh, it, it's definitely an amazing story that you had and, and the people that, that started everything off with you. Um, and I'm assuming that the runners and some of the other people in the community um, tried stuff on for you and gave you feedback, and you obviously were getting paid in your own um, making of the clothing. What do you think was the biggest thing that you learned about women's running clothes in, in the manufacturing? Testing. We're testing everything. <laughs> That's one of the big things I learned, and I think you know it shouldn't taken that shouldn't have been a surprise. But one example was Elizabeth and I were trying a new elastic supplier, and we went out on a very hot day for about an eight mile run. And we were thinking after we were finishing up this run that wow, we're really must be losing a lot of weight because our waistbands are getting are getting nice and relaxed. Well, it turned out that the elastic that we were trying was not resistant to sweat, so that if you hadn't tried these on and you just went ahead and made stuff without trying it out in the way it's really going to be used, you know, you'd, you'd, be, you'd be making a lot of bad products. Um, but wear testing um, was an essential part of um, everything we were doing with our, with our product. Um, of course, when it got to sport bras later on, um, you know that was that was essential. Um, but on the side, on the part of making product, that was um, the kind of product we were making that was critical. And fabrics were, you know, there were so many advances being made in um, the technical qualities of fabrics, um, and those, you know, there were a lot of trial, there were a lot of lots of trial and error in that. And um, in the olden days, polypropylene was, I don't know if you remember when that that fabric, you probably weren't young, um, born then, but when polypropylene was first coming into the market, and um, it was a miracle fabric except that it stunk, you know, and so it had, it became something of an offensive product until it 
too was improved. But um, and then Gore-Tex, of course, came in, and it was so boardy when it first started, and it was so expensive. But the fabrics that are available now are just, um, I mean, they really are miraculous in what you can get. But in when we were first making clothing, it was uh, we we had terry cloth running shorts, <laughs> and I just you know. This was really nice terry cloth. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a fabric you would ordinarily associate with running shorts. Uh, and you started with running shorts, and then how did you expand beyond then? Because at the time, there's very few women running anyways, and I'm sure that's why a lot of people were really skeptical about your business because they probably didn't see many women out running, and they thought your, your business would be pretty small. And so you started with running shorts, and how did you advance from running shorts, how did you decide which pieces of clothing to go from there? Well, just by what you want, you need yourself. You need a top to go with your shorts. So um, <laughs> tops and shorts and then um, warm-ups were the way we sort of grew the product line. And, um, and then we would have these tops that were um, for women who didn't need, like, didn't need any support like me because I would be able to run marathons without a bra. Um, that, um, you know, we had supportive tops, mittens, hats. So it was, and then as we got into the colder weather and started to get into um, nylon fabrics for windbreakers and waterproof stuff, um, because at that point, you know, it wasn't whether you were going to run, it's just what what kind of clothes you were going to wear for the conditions. So we would be continually coming up with products that would just, give you more um, alternatives to deal with different types of weather. So that's how that category okay. grew. And then with the sports bras, a lot of women talked about when they first started running, some of them you know, didn't need sports, didn't need bras. Some of them wore their regular bras. Some of them wore um, swimming boots and yeah. underneath their clothing. So tell me about how you guys you know, started with the sports bras and I know I talked to Cheryl um, yeah, uh, Bridges, Flynn um, Planning as mom, and she actually has a couple patents for you know sports bras, and a couple other women talked about when sports bras first came out. So talking about um, when sports bras first came out or what you remember about them. Well, back in uh, the late 70s, and I think it was Hinda Schreiber um, who founded Jog Bra. And she had somehow found us in order to ask us to get some help with finding a manufacturer. So I know Elizabeth and Hinda um, ended up collaborating and um, bringing Hinda to the factory that we had found in South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina. So for probably 10 years, 15, 12, maybe longer, um, Jog Bra and Moving Comfort were sort of sister brands and complementary brands. And so we even shared Salesforce, which is a way of saying this is why we didn't even try to go into bras because that was their specialty and they did it really, really well. Um, so we didn't take that category on seriously except for support tops. And I would, you know, we didn't go into constructed bras or try to make bras that would be um, supportive for um, C and D cup women until after Jagra had already sold the champion. So we really didn't get into the category until the early 90s. 
Um, because our our customer base had been pushing us for it, but you know we had we used the same sales reps, we had a lot of the same customers, and we just didn't want to compete with each other um, that way. So um, it took them sort of selling out for us to start going into the category. Okay. And it's probably now I believe it's probably seventy percent of moving comfort sales. So it ended up almost becoming the tail that wagged the dog, and for very good reason. I mean, our our whole orientation, I never, well, I certainly never considered myself um, good on the fashion side of things, and running clothing certainly became a lot more than just function, um, and it's very much a style um, business now, too. I mean, you've got to have it all, not just um, good technical products. Um, but in the case of bras, that still is um, that still is equipment in the way I see it because you women cannot do well, they can't be perform well if they're not supporting, you know, this very in some cases huge part of a woman's anatomy. So, um, so bras are sort of the one indispensable piece of equipment that a, a woman runner I and mean, shoes and bras are the most critical pieces of equipment for women once you get beyond a pair of shorts and top that fits. Very that that is very true. And a lot of a lot of girls don't realize that, you know, sports bras didn't come out until later and didn't realize that a lot of women just either ran with nothing or ran with whatever they found. Oh God, the stories we would hear, you know, two bras or having to wear washcloths under under the bras to stop all the pain, you know, all the all the cuts and the chafing and I mean the real serious pain. I mean we had we had a friend of ours, Elizabeth and I did, um, who was a tap dancer. That was her primary, um, well not a sport, but that was her art. And um, she must have been a double D at least. And so she was help so helpful with us because we talk about a high impact activity. Um, but what she used to suffer with. Um, because she couldn't get a bra that allowed her to jump up and down, literally. Um, and so she was a big part of our, uh, you know, our little wear test brigade. Um, but, you know, jog bra definitely set the standard for years. And, um, you know, now there's obviously quite a lot of competition in that as well. But I still think there's just a handful of companies that really, really do it well. It's very expensive and not easy to do. <laughs> very true. And you, so you started off with making, you know, the running clothes and the jog bras. How did you, you know, Moving Comfort was designed, you know, I guess you guys first started with running, but then you guys kind of expanded into the other sports, and like you said, the tap dancing. Um, did it? Did you well, we didn't actually, we weren't making... I'm sorry, we weren't making clothes intended for a tap dancer. It just happened that somebody that we knew who was a tap dancer was a great wear tester for bras. But anyway, I'm sorry, I didn't I'll mean to interrupt. Oh, no, no, it's fine. I was just, um, I wondered if originally you were, the idea was just to make running clothes or if because of the name Moving Comfort, you had thought about doing it for all sports and making equipment or apparel that would be you know, used across the board. Well, you know, as time went on, um, we were just finding that, like ourselves, uh, women were starting to get active in a lot of different things, and running was only one of the things that they might be doing. So 
Um, we ended up in the outdoor industry as a pretty serious um, product because you could, you know, you'd need things like good sport bras and, and clothes to go hiking and um, kayaking, so paddle sports. So really any outdoor activity um, that had sort of repetitive motion, we made clothes for it. You know, it just the clothes were no longer just so sports-specific um, because our customers no longer that limited or narrow in their interests. And, uh, I mean, I sort of wish that when I was running high mileage, I had known about yoga and other things that would have made it easier for my muscles to stay supple. Um, but now that seems to be a much more... Um, well understood and practiced. Um, and so the clothing, sort of we would expect the clothing to be versatile. That um, it wasn't just for one activity. So part of it was just pragmatic. What you could wear for hiking would be the same thing you could then put your running shoes on and go run. And just sort of following our customer. That's true, probably just going along with what people wanted and people probably contacting you about, you know, making different clothing. And as you said, you made things for the different weathers and and rain and wind. Um, and when you first started off, was there any idea in your mind about colors and designs? Um, were there things available to make the different things you wanted? How creative? Oh, yeah. It? Well, Elizabeth is the creative, the you know, the, the the clothing creative person of the two of us. And uh, I remember the, the shock of, oh my God, people want clothing that is the same color as their running shoes. It seemed like, oh my God, or at least they wanted them to go along with it. So um, the importance of color um, was hit us very. I mean, it became very early on a very critical part of what you were selling your product based on, and um, naming colors was a big part of what we had to do, and um, we had a wide color palette, um, and uh, and we also got that there was a whole area, era of, of prints that became really popular in the 80s, so it wasn't solid colors, it was all these incredible different print combinations, and um, it was... It was a real fashion business, I must say. But that started, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, where that, um, you know, sort of became an integral part of making product for women. Um, you know, that sensibility was much more evident among women than men, and that made partly made the difference between not just having a fit for women, but also just having the aesthetic that was appealing to women. And that, you know, because we were then starting to see our our primary retailer um, still is, but um, started out as, as running shops, which also become more diverse in the kind of customer base that they have. Um, but there, when, you know, just the merchandising of a store that was only focused on men was they, those stores also had to adapt in order to be able to accommodate sort of the, the sensibilities of the female um, mindset, the way they would just organize product within the store or merchandise their windows. Um, they had to adapt and, and become much more sensitive to what is now probably 60% of their customer base, where it might have been 
10 to 20% when we first started. So that's, you know, fleet feeds, which are the biggest cluster of uh, specialty um, running retailers that we dealt with, um, they have become, you know, their dominant customer is a woman now. That's not true in the early 80s. And when you first started, when you first started running in 1974, had you known about or had any idea about Title IX that came into effect in 1972? Were you aware of, you know, the women's movement in sports and education at that point? I don't, I mean, I know I was certainly aware of it. I don't think that I, um, because I was out of high school, college, I don't think I was as aware of the potential it was going to have um, over the next 20 years. So I think I became increasingly aware of it, um, well, through what the RRCA was trying to do. Um, But then as I got into um, the late 80s and getting involved with the Women's Sports Foundation in the early 90s, where I really got to appreciate how um, almost... Well, transformational that that law became because of the people that were working so hard to make sure it was upheld. You know, the law would have gone nowhere if it hadn't been for a lot of uppity women, particularly in the Women's Sports Foundation, uh, Billie Jean King, of them really taking it on and, and, and supporting local cases all over the country to make sure that schools complied. So that was a roundabout answer to I became more aware of it. And with Title IX, do you, what do you think were the biggest, um, I guess, changes that you saw with Title IX? You, you graduated from college, you started running, and then you started a women's business. Mm-hmm. What changes did you see with Title IX, and what do you think it helped with, you know, with moving comfort? Um. Well, I guess the first thing I can see, I could see what the impact it was having with my, I, I have five nieces, I have no nephews, but is that they were coming up through school. They were all participating in sports. And that just wasn't, my experience had not been that at all. It was sort of the girls who did participate in sports um, were not the girls who were getting the boys, so to speak. Um, I mean, it really was sort of considered unfeminine. Um when I was in high school, but um, I, you know, it's hard because Title IX was so oriented, at least through the schools and the kind of, our customer was really an adult woman already out of school. We really didn't have that many um, customers who were necessarily of school age, Um, so it's hard for me to say how it directly impacted Title IX, certainly in the first 15, 20 years. Um, I think the women's movement overall, um, as much as Title IX, had an impact on women getting into running um, and feeling more sort of entitled to devote time to something as what, for a lot of women, self-centered and selfish to be spending time running. Um, So... I think Title IX was part of, you know, a whole cultural shift. Okay. 
And US, your client base was originally, you know, adult women that were running. Um, did you guys have to do any type of marketing to convince women that running was, you know, socially acceptable or, you know, that they should try it? Um, did you have a lot of pushback from some women or men that thought, oh, you know, this shouldn't happen or, you know, why would we need running clothes for something we don't do very often? You know, how did you guys get increase your customer base and convince more women to buy women's clothing or to even begin running? You know, I think so much of our focus was through our retailers who were more directly um, doing stuff in the community to promote running. And through the RCA, of course, I was actively involved in the RCA in the early years. Um, And for us, it was, I mean, we 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 did sponsorships at a very low level, obviously, because we didn't have a ton of money, but we did, you know, share our clothing pretty liberally. So I think it was just through example and word of mouth more than anything. Um, and, I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily feel like we, we caused more women to run. I think we made women feel appreciated and, um, and respected. Um, and probably, and I, we, I, we did get feedback from people that we, we, I guess we, yeah, we inspired them, but it wasn't a marketing effort to do that. It was just having the right product, I guess, for a long time, having the only product, um, and just being out there doing it ourselves. So we were, you know, very much a part of the customer base we were selling to. We pretty much were our customer base. Okay. And um, you know, just very, just active in the in the sports community. So I don't know how to say I don't know how to answer that <laughs> other than just doing what we did. Okay. And and, and then there was long? Nike. I'm sorry. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh no. And then there was Nike. Yes. Nike eventually seeps into a lot of things. But you yeah. were the first women's apparel for a long for a while. How long were you the only women's apparel? And then how did how did other companies uh, come into the market? Well, we weren't the only ones um, from very early on, um, but there were ones that started and, and went out of business pretty quickly. I don't know if you have come across the name Pantera or Marathon Her, Marathon Sir. Um, Bill Rogers did women's running clothing pretty early on. Frank Shorter, I think they were pretty much just... Um, Mostly men in unisex, though. But, um, oh, Head. I don't know if Henley told you about Head Sportswear. Did a line of very high-end women's running clothing, and they actually helped us because their prices were so much higher than ours. They finally made ours look reasonable. Um, so there was competition pretty early on. Um, okay. They didn't just they just didn't last very long. Okay. Any of them. Okay. Um, what was the first one that came in that, that lasted and, and kind of gave and stayed around and gave you guys kind of a run? Um, well, it's going to be the shoe companies, um, definitely, all of them, Adidas, Nike, New Balance. Um, Did they all jump into the water about the same time after they saw what you guys were doing? or? Well, the early, the early 80s, we started to see a lot of competition. And um, I think, yes, they saw it, and it wasn't hard to see it because, you know, like us, they were selling 
to specialty running shops who were telling them. So, um, and I think some of them were doing it to be politically correct. So the product itself wasn't necessarily that thought out, but the colors were. Hmm. Um, so, you know, for quite a while there, they ended up helping us look better. Um, you know, but sooner or later that, 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 that competitive edge, I would say by the mid nineties was started to be gone. Other people had figured out that men and women were different in more ways than just breasts. <laughs> and you talked about uh, you talked about being involved uh, with the RSCA um, pretty early on. What did you do with the RSCA, and how did you see it change over the years? I'm not going to be able to speak as well to that because my my memory on it really sucks. But I think when Jeff Starman was president, he had me as PR, um, and then he, um, I think it was an appointed thing, of um, the East Coast RCA person. So I would have been, and I'm not even sure what they're called, regional VPs. I don't know whether that's still part of the structure. But yeah, and this is regional directors. Uh, yeah. I think I was I was a regional director of the um, Roadrunners. So I think I was politically active with the Roadrunners for probably five years, maybe five or six years. I mean, I stayed a member for years and years, but I don't think I held a um, political position or an organizational position for more than about five or six years, as I remember very roughly. Okay. I remember Henley and I wrote a book, a pamphlet. Um, on, Was that about uh, the women's running safety? Running women first steps. We did a, I think we did a flyer on safety, and then we did this little booklet that was distributed through all the clubs, um, and it was this cute little pamphlet. I think the cover was pink, as a matter of fact. Aww. It was called Run, Running Women First Steps. Yeah. I don't know if it still exists anymore, but it was had line drawing. I mean, it was really, it was really uh, low budget. <laughs> and what was what made you decide to do that, or what was the, the need for um, for that? I think we understood there was a need just to give women a little bit of a sort of little primer on how to get started and some of the problems they might encounter, um, and. Uh, you know, running during pregnancy or running while you had your period or stretching ideas. Um, I'd be surprised if Henry still doesn't have a copy of it somewhere. And I might also somewhere. But the idea was that we were serving the RRC membership. Mm. So it was done for roadrunners. And speaking of educating women about running, you know, you talked about running during pregnancy and running uh, during your menstrual cycle. When you had started running, did you hear, you know, all the fun rumors about running will make you, you know, unfeminine, running will make you not be able to have children? I'm assuming you heard some of those concerns. And <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. And they were, they were believed. I mean, they really were a lot of, a lot of I'm sure, highly respected doctors and stuff. Um, yeah, believed that that, um, you know, your uterus would drop or, yeah, there were 
all of those beliefs out there. I don't think um, I don't think everybody was laughing about it. I think they really took it seriously. I think a lot of women did too. A lot of women still may, for all I know, <laughs> believe a lot of that. But um, yeah, but thank goodness the medical profession doesn't seem to believe that anymore. Very true. Was did that have some you know part of you guys writing as the Running Women First Steps? to give women information to go against that, or had that already been kind of squashed by the time you wrote this? Um, I, I don't think, well, I don't, I think, yeah, we probably did it to dispel any myths or give people comfortable comfort that that wasn't going to be the case. Yeah, I would say we probably, that was part of what message we were sending in there. Um, and then as time goes along, you you, know, you stay with moving comfort for a while. And, and tell me, um, I guess take me through the rest of the moving comfort history with you um, and Elizabeth and then deciding to um, get out of the business in the, um, you know, just when you guys decided to sell and, uh, and kind of move out of moving comfort. About 19, well, 1996 was, I think, our biggest year of sales. I mean, we were experiencing pretty dramatic growth. It was very hard for us to keep up with in finance. And we, at the same time, there were a lot of things that were happening that were just making everything a lot, pretty scary, actually. Manufacturing was then kind of, there were fewer and fewer options in the United States, and costing structure was getting to be such that you really needed to go offshore. So that kind of demanded a level of um, of management um, and control that was really challenging. I mean, you're producing in China, and it's not like you can get on a plane every couple of months and go visit your factories in China. Um, we were getting more competition, um, a lot of marketing dollars being spent by the likes of Nike, and more and more women um, – you know, so the customer base was growing exponentially, but so were the manufacturing challenges and the competition. Um, so we knew by the early 2000s, we really had to sell because we just did not have the resources, the financial resources, and as far as I was concerned, we didn't have the management ones either. I mean, it just, I don't think I had the, um, I don't think I had the ambition really to manage the kind of business that we needed to become in order to be competitive and to manufacture internationally, globally. Um, and I think it was it was kind of somewhat satisfying, not satisfying, but you didn't feel so bad about it because so many companies were recognizing that they weren't going to be able to um, continue if they didn't get under the umbrella of companies with a lot more capabilities. So in 2002, Russell Corporation had approached us, and over a very short courtship, we sold to Russell Corporation um, in August of 2002. And then they kept they we had a four-year well we continued working with them for four years I guess it was, and um, that was a that would have been a very dramatic change in our. Experience in our in business, um, and I'm glad we had it, but I didn't love it. 
um, by any means. It's uh, it was kind of like you spent all your time reporting rather than doing. Mm-hmm. And um, but it got it was you know just from the standpoint of um, of uh, personal growth, just being able to see what it was like to work in a multi-billion-dollar corporation was was um, valuable education, but. I had definitely lost my enthusiasm for the business by um, by that time. I mean, you can't not love our product because you know it was our baby, and um, but it was so much time for it to go on with other parents, so to speak. I think Elizabeth and I both would have been fine actually having um, retired and gone on to other things by the late '90s. But you really couldn't. I mean, we had an obligation to staff and people and the brand to get it into safe harbor and felt like we had and could leave without feeling like we'd, um, we had defaulted on any moral or financial obligations. So that makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, I really like not owning a business anymore. <laughs> I really do. Of course, Elizabeth has gone on and started another business because that's the kind of person she is. <laughs> and I love that in her, but I sure didn't have the fire to go on. So what, so what did you do after the four years were up working uh, for Russell to get you know, the transition done? Well, um, after um, Russell, you may know that Russell sold. Yep. It sold to uh, ultimately Berkshire Hathaway, and, Russ, and Moving Comfort is now under the very, um, very, very um, agile. And I, Jim Weber, who is who runs Brooks, mm-hmm. he's just—I mean, he—we really just absolutely adored him. He understood the kind of marketing and kind of product and kind of integrity that was required. So. Um, having Moving Comfort be out there under the Brooks umbrella was a very satisfying way to go. Um, then I knew that I didn't need to stay in Northern Virginia. Elizabeth and her husband um, had already bought property out in Orange, Virginia, which is in Central Virginia, um, closest metropolis, if you want to call it, to us is Charlottesville. She'd already moved out here, and I said, "I'm not staying up here." And Elizabeth and I, even though we weren't, we didn't, we didn't get into business together as friends. We got into, she came into the business, and we became sisters, pretty much. Um, so I didn't, I didn't want to lose contact with her. So I just moved down to Orange, Virginia, too. Um, <laughs> so by June of 2006, I had bought a house down here, and. Uh, by July of 2006, I had a dog for the first time as an adult and um, was very happily not working for a while um, and just started volunteering um, at organizations that were interesting to me. And then a job opened up and I decided to go back to work ah. as an assistant to the president of James Madison's Montpelier. So I am now working on a historic property of the father of the Constitution and the fourth president, and um, I'm I'm exposed to a totally different way of life, and I just really love it. Oh wow! 
So it's very different. I'm glad I had the experiences I had. I'm so glad. I just feel like um, I've, I've gained a lot of wisdom and um, and now get to be helpful to somebody else who has ambitions that I no longer have but need somebody to help keep them organized. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it's, really, it's really fun. <laughs> uh, and you've been involved with other things, not only now you're involved um, with this, but you were involved with you know the Women's Sports Foundation and the RSCA. And we talked about the RSCA, but we haven't touched on what you um, – were involved with at the Women's Sports Foundation. What did you do with well, what, well, with the Women's Sports Foundation, by the time Russell bought us, we became a sponsor. So we actually put a lot of money into the RCA. I don't remember exactly how much it was, I mean, to the Women's Sports Foundation. So we were involved as sponsors. Okay. So, I mean, I, you know, Donna Lopiano and all the folks who were running Women's Sports Foundation at the time, that's how we interacted with each other was providing financial resources. Okay. And then the outdoor industry was another trade association that um, I served on boards, on their board, and then the Sporting Goods Manufacturers Association um, serving on their board. So they were basically trade associations I ended up being involved with. And with the outdoor industry, um, got involved in government affairs, which in those days was lobbying for um, federal support of public lands. Which is important. <laughs> we need more Very important. Yes. Yeah. We need to quit, quit taking that away from, from people. <laughs> We're not going to yeah. get anywhere to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you've definitely been on, you know, you've been on, you know, the boards for the sporting goods manufacturers, the boards for the outdoor industry. Um, I also said that you're on the executive committee of, you know, government relations, the sports apparel, uh, you know, and then the fun awards that you got were the Women of the Year in Sports um, in 1996 by the Sporting Goods Business in New York Times. And then yeah. one, one of the fun ones that, that I saw was the Fred LeBeau Women's Running Award in 1998 from the Roadrunners Club of America. Um, what that that ranks as the most cool um, statue I or award I ever got, and I'm looking at it right now because it's um, sitting out in my my living room, and it's a miniature of Fred looking at his watch at the end of the New York Marathon, and it's oh, wow. it's just gorgeous. I mean, it is it is a piece of art. So that is probably my most highly coveted award. And what was the award uh, based on? What did they... Um... Let me go look and see what it says. Hold on. Women's Running Award. Okay. So I'm not... I, I mean, it was... The 1997 um, Roadrunners Club of America, New York Roadrunners Club, was how the award is um, okay. labeled. Okay. And this and heavy bronze, heavy bronze statue, and it so oh. looks like Fred. Aww. <laughs> and do they still give that exact same one for the same award? Is it? Is it been the? I don't know. Hmm. But they're not taking mine. 
That's right. I, I, I don't know. I would love if you could uh, get a picture of yourself with that um, and maybe we could put that on um, the site with it because I would love to have a picture of that award. And it also comes from the RCA, so I would love to, to see a picture of that if you could send one at some point. Well, thanks to the iPad and being able to picture, take a picture of yourself, I probably can do that without even having to get anybody to help me. So, yeah. You sure you don't want just a picture of the statue? Well, you, either way, you can. But eventually, okay. um, for the website, I'm going to have um, I'm going to have bios. Some people send me long ones. Some people are sending me short ones. Some people have me do the bio, and I get them to approve it. So when the website comes out, I want to have a short bio and, and uh, pictures, new and old, of all the women. You know, maybe a picture of them running or a picture, you know, them, you know, when they first started running or first race or, or their favorite race uh, could be with your, you know, with your statue, with the sculpture. And then a picture, you know, of a recent picture, if they'll send me one. Some will not. <laughs> yeah. Are but, you okay? Are you okay with um, pictures of, like, um, pictures of basically news articles? Because I've got stuff that is just, uh, you know, from newspapers or our magazines where, you know, I can basically scan it and get you a scanned PDF of something. I think so, yeah. I, um, I'm going to leave it up to the RSDA to decide, you know, if, okay. if I think they have the rights to put them on there. And they'll, they know a little bit more than I do about that. And then yeah. they have a lot of stock stuff, too, from, you know, years and years of running and archives things as well. So. Oh, yeah, right. So, yeah, they'll look through some of that. But, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of taking pretty much whatever, you know, people want to send me and, and do with it, and then we'll you know, hopefully have a, have a really nice display on the website to, so that people can scroll through and, and see pictures of, of races or things that they want to, you know, hear the women talk about. And that way they can yeah. um, whichever woman they want and, and kind of go through and you know, learn about the history of women's running through your voices and your own stories. Cool. All right. Well, I would guess just by the nature of, you know, you've got somebody who's, what, she 94, um, that she won't have digital images probably to go back yes. to her yes. to her heyday. So um, yep. probably, yeah, I think probably I'll, I'll do the scanning thing. I think that'll probably get, um, that should be okay. So I would just email it to you then? Yes. yep. And okay. Then I, I compile it to make it easier for them so that, you know, I send each woman, I send their stuff kind of in a one big email. So okay. I'm bombarded with, you know, <laughs> yeah, 70, yeah. 70 women. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because next next weekend Elizabeth and I are um, are doing a retro, well, we're, we've been asked to meet with this group of people and tell them the moving comfort story. So there may be pictures that come out from that, so that would be kind of Yeah, that would be great to have so. You know, recent picture of you too, especially telling your story of movie yeah. comfort. Yeah. Pretty soon I'm going to forget it. Later. Um, later. Anyway. Well, what do, you, what, what do you do, by the way? What do you do in your um, day, in your in your professional world? Uh, so I am 35, and I ran. I went to the University of Arkansas, and then I ran for ASICS, and then I ran for Adidas. And I oh my, with, yeah. And then I was with Nike for the past. Well, Nike dropped me in 2011, so I was with them for about six years. And so 
I tried, you know, running on my own again, uh, but I've just had so many injuries, uh, yeah. like two years. And, and so I finally, uh, this past injury was just enough to, you know, break the camel's back. And I said, all right, you know, I, I gave it as many tries as I could, and it's time to move on. I was at the USATF conference, and I met uh, Jean, and she actually had a different project in mind for me. And as we were talking, she thought, you know, I think this would be better for you to do, you know, do the RCA interviews. Originally, they were going to have somebody do conference calls with about eight women, and they were going to do different generations and, you know, different groups. And I said, a conference call with eight women is not going to sound great. Um, You know, that could be individualized. And she's like, oh, well, you know, no one's going to have time. And I said, well, at the moment, I have time. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And so they originally thought it was going to take me an entire year to do it. But, you know, I'm 75% of the way through in May. Wow. So um, it's really been a cathartic experience for me because I was transitioning from, you know, professionally running to I don't know what I want to do with my life, or as I tell yeah. people, I haven't decided what I want to do when I grow up yet. So yeah. it's been great listening to women talk about how they transition, the things that they would do different, the things that um, that they enjoyed or, you know, didn't enjoy. And um, I'm So this is kind of my bridge to <laughs> what I want to do, which I think is college coaching, so I'm applying to the oh. Yeah. yeah. Yep. The the season is kind of ending. They had conference and they just had districts and nationals will be in two weeks. So jobs are starting to open, but sales domino effect and open all summer. So it's going to be, you know, applying for jobs as they open every day. And, and, and I don't know where I'll end up. My husband's a teacher and he's a coach and, um, you know, I'll probably move at first until he can, until he can get a job. So where do you live now? I live in Beaverton, Oregon, you know, land of Nike. Oh, yeah. Now, did you say you were 35 or 45? 35. 35. Oh, you are. You are. You're a child. Um, <laughs> but obviously you're you're a writer, too, it sounds like. You know, it, it's funny. I never would have thought of myself as a writer, but yeah. I, I guess because I'm honest and open and not really afraid to speak my mind, people have yeah. enjoyed what I've written because no one's kind of been as I guess mm, as forthcoming as I have the last year and a half. Um, yeah. About things, so yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it kind of all started from from there. And, yeah. Now, is your injury such that you can't run at all, or you just can't race? Well, for a while, it was the past gosh, since January, I haven't actually been able to run at all. I oh. I have I had two Achilles surgeries and I had nerve damage and um, a hamstring tear that they originally thought was a sciatic nerve and then stress fracture in the stiff bone and yeah it's been I just said you know what I, I'm done so I'm hoping oh. my goal I tell everybody my goal is to sit without pain and to eventually run without pain I am very yeah. old now in my life <laughs> yeah uh, what was your what was your uh, best distance I I. Competed in Beijing in the 10,000, um, and then in 2009 Worlds in the 10,000. So I guess the 10,000 is what you know I'm best known for. I love the 5K, but the 10,000 is what I've wow. done the best in. So. Okay, I got I got to ask you, what was your best time? Uh, 31:13 in the 10K. Oh. I ran oh. that in the 2009 Worlds, and then the 5K I ran 14:56. Um, oh. 
God. That was my, uh, that was a lifetime goal. I mean, two of my lifetime oh. goals, make six and, and break 15 minutes. And, and I did those, so I'm, I'm Wow. <laughs> yeah. God, what, that was, that's incredible. Yeah. But I'm not surprised you're injured. <laughs> I know. It's, it's a lot of a, you know, and, and that's, my injuries have really, I've kind of been the advocate for, um, and I'm also on the Track and Field Athletes Association board. It's new. It's a, it's a new group trying to professionalize track and field and, you know, standing up for athletes' rights and, um, you know, trying to get fair, you know, things for athletes. And I think my injury really made me do that because athletes get injured because we have to try to, you know, appease our contracts. We have to do this, this, and this. It might not be the healthiest thing the healthiest thing for you to do, but you do it because you need to keep your job and your contract. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, we're trying to fight fight for that, you know, just common sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it, it's interesting. Um, Although part of what made you such a good athlete um, was coming in from inside you too. So, yeah. um, you know, you're so competitive. I'm, I, can, I'm, I can only imagine what kind of a um, hit to your, to sort of, sense of who you are this would be um getting injured is you know it's like all of a sudden yeah. somebody just takes you out of the game and you want <laughs> to get back in and it's yeah. just yeah i really i sympathize with you a lot on that <laughs> have you ever have you have you ever done bikram yoga i know that's that's the hot is it the hot one the hot yeah i the, yeah yeah and i just because of injury and stuff i i have just found that Incredible therapy. So, so new place that just opened, and they have this this special for you know two weeks. That um, I've been waiting where I'm actually going to be in town for this full two weeks, so I can take advantage of it. So I don't miss any of the Yeah. Um, well, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll be. I'm oh, sorry. No, I was going to say I I would love to have you drop me a email or something and tell me what you think of it because um, if you can just get past how obnoxious the Bikram guy is. And, um, you know, sort of just see if you can take advantage of what happens to your joints and, and muscles when you're, you know, you're kind of taking your time going into these these postures. It's just, I, you know, I'm 62 and I just have never had this kind of um, fluidity in my movement as I have with the combination of that and, um, and, and you know, with regular yoga and Bikram. It's just... Um, one of your questions was, you know, what do you do now? I'm, and I haven't run in probably four years. And it's all yoga now. And um, yesterday I went out with some friends on a eight-mile hike that was a lot of steep terrain. And um, we were out for about seven hours because one of our party had terrible foot issues with their boots. But um, I had, you know, I just, I had absolutely no difficulties at all with any of it and that's really the first time I sort of did anything on the endurance side because um, you know yoga is not that doesn't feel like it's a cardio exercise but um, it just really got to appreciate you know what I was getting from the yoga practice and um, I mean I'm interested in it as as an athletic workout not as a spiritual experience yeah um, but um, you know I'm in terms of functional fitness and, um, you know, aging, I just feel like, uh, to me, running sort of petered out as a valuable way to spend time. Um, you know, it's really important to me. I'm definitely addicted to working out. But, 
the returns with running are not nearly for me as much as they are with the other with yoga. Um, and I'm, I'm attributing that just to my age, you know, just to think running was great for me when I was in my 20s and 30s and 40s, but it really started to lose its overall value as I got older. Okay. So you transitioned from running to, to more yoga and hiking and, and just working out for a fitness base? Yes, yes. I okay. Yeah. And I, okay. you know, you may be a long way from that <laughs> because you're <laughs> a competitor, but, um, you know, at some point you'll just want oh, yeah. to feel healthy. Um, oh, yeah. It sounds like feeling healthy would be a really nice thing for you right now, at least being out of pain. <laughs> yes, that's that's my goal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess one of my last questions uh, to you um, was, in this whole business of movie comfort, did you see yourself, you know, as a, as a pioneer in women's running or that you were or that you were creating history in making one of the first women's lines of running clothing? Well, I'd say objectively we felt, yes, that that's what we had accomplished and that's what we were doing. Um, But, you know, whether – I don't know if that was what was, uh, you know, giving me inner peace or anything – it was very gratifying to feel like that's that was the outcome of just doing something that felt right to us. Um, so yeah, I guess we feel that way, especially now by contrast um, of what the world looks like now compared to what it was 36 years ago. Okay, and you now you are working with the yeah. uh, James Madison. James Madison's Montpelier. James Madison up here. And what else are you doing these days? Are you um, are you on any other boards at the moment or any other committees? Well, I have joined Rotary, so I'm now a Rotarian. Um, I am on the board of my homeowners association. I am uh, I'm, I'm uh, a quasi involved with a board of supervisors race and uh, part of a group called the Women's Diversity Forum. And uh, uh, that's about it. Oh, yes, and started a book group here with my neighbors with the aging and range from 91 down to about 51. And we get together and study local history, local as in Madison, Jefferson, Washington, Monroe. So we're we're studying basically American history in the early era. Um, That's very cool. For the fun of it. Can you believe it? So, wow. Yeah, I know. I never knew any of this stuff. It's just, it's really, it's really mind bending. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really fun interview to do with you. Um, you know, sharing the history of, you know, of a women's apparel company and and how you got started and, and where you're at now. Well, I am hoping the best for you because um, you sound like a really neat lady. Oh, so. uh, okay. And I'll keep everybody updated on things, and, and I'll be able to view about pictures and bios and all that fun stuff. So, Okay. All right. Well, you take care, and may pain be out of your life very soon. I will. Once I get to the hot yoga, I will let you know how it goes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> take care. All right. All right. So much. Have a good day. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.